Uh, it's my privilege this morning to introduce you and welcome to our, our pulpit, Dr. Carl Ellis. Uh, I had a, a really fun experience of the 8 o'clock service that I've never experienced in my life. The pastor that was preaching got a phone call during the sermon. Dr. Ellis wears a little, wears a little pack on his side, and it, you know, if, you're, if you're a congregant and your phone starts ringing, everybody looks at you like it's throwing darts at you, right? Well, the pastor's phone rings. You can't throw darts. You just smile and go, I wonder what that's all about. And it was his mother calling to check on him. So <laughs> he's like, everybody say hi to my mom. Mom, I'm preaching. I'll call you back. So now that's the, that's the fun side. And he didn't miss a beat. He, and you're going to hear a wonderful sermon this morning. Let me tell you a little bit about him before uh, we invite him up. Uh, he holds a BA from Hampton University. He holds a master's degree from Westminster Theological Seminary and a graduate degree from Oxford University. Uh, when he began his ministry back in 1969, Dr. Ellis was a senior campus minister with the Tom Skinner Associates uh, in New York. He then was the assistant pastor of Forest Park Community Church in Baltimore, Maryland, and he served at the same time on the faculty of Chesapeake Theological Seminary. He's also served as a seminar instructor for Prison Fellowship. Dr. Ellis then went on to be an adjunct faculty member for the Center of Urban Theological Studies and was the dean of their intercultural studies at Westminster Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania, excuse me, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He's the associate pastor of cultural apologetics at the New City Fellowship Church uh, he also studied under Dr. Francis Schaefer in Labrie, Switzerland. Uh, Dr. Ellis is now the Provost Professor of Theologi Theology and Culture, Assistant to the Chancellor and Senior Fellow of the African American Leadership Initiative and Reformed Seminary. Uh, would you please welcome to our pulpit, uh, Dr. Carl Ellis. It's indeed an honor to be here. I assure you my ringer is off. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, my mom, she calls me at the craziest times. She's 92, you know, and uh, so she's, she's hanging, she still drives and all that. She's, uh, she's, she's quite, she's a character, she's a piece of work, as they would say. <laughs> all right, I'm gonna make sure that I got the right time here. Okay, uh, we're going to look at Luke um, chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. One day as Jesus was teaching in the, the, the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law with the elders came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? If we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it came from. And Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Amen. I want you to think with me on the subject and pray with me, along with me, on the subject. Don't lose your focus. Don't lose your focus. What we see here is uh, 
we talk about what should we focus on in the first place. Well, one, we should focus on God's grace. That's the whole thing in a nutshell, God's grace. We've already seen the entry into Jerusalem in the last chapter. Uh, as he came to the city, he wept over it. And soon after he had arrived in Jerusalem, he cleansed the temple. Um, and throughout the ministry of Jesus, he taught with great controversy sometimes. Uh, and this passage was typical of the dialogues he had with his opposition. Now, who were those who composed the opposition? They were those who had lost their focus on God's grace. They came from two groups. One, the chief priests and teachers of the law. They were in charge of over matters of theology and doctrine and the meaning of the law and those kind of things. So this was the religious establishment. And the other group were the elders. They were over all civil matters. This was the political establishment. And, uh, and these two groups got together to trap Jesus into offending one of them. Now, God had set up these offices to serve his people. But now they had become institutions to serve themselves. And why? Because they lost their focus on God's grace. You see, what happens oftentimes, a movement will come up that God will bring forth. And then the movement needs some, some support organizationally. So an organization will emerge to support the movement. And the organization becomes an institution. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And people begin to focus on the institution and eventually it flips. The movement supports the institution. And as the institution grows and grows, it demands more and more of the movement. Eventually the movement dies of exhaustion and then you got the institution left. And the institution loses its focus on the meaning of the movement. Instead of preparing the way for Christ, they were preparing a conspiracy against Christ. Why? Like I said, because they lost their focus on God's grace. And because they lost this focus, they neither received Jesus' teachings nor let others receive it. The temple merchants uh, were especially upset. They were, they were upset with Jesus because he had driven them out of the temple. Um, these merchants were a major source of revenue for the temple budget. Now, I, I didn't really see the significance of this until I went to Thailand a couple of months ago and I visited a temple. I was in Chiang Mai and I visited a temple up on the mountain and I, I saw what was going on. There was a lot of hucksterism going on. People selling this and hustling that. And all, it was a money-making scheme just so you can go there and get some, the priest to throw some water on you. It broke my heart to see these beautiful people bowing down to, to idols and all that. And that's kind of what was going on here. They were exchanging a currency at exorbitant profits. You know, uh, you know, if you've ever been overseas, you've got to go to the money changers, right? And the thing is, it's, it's bad enough if the exchange rate isn't that good. But then they've got to charge you fees on top of that. Doesn't that make you mad? I remember I went to Cyprus uh, I think I had $100. I, I wasn't making much money then. And uh, Cyprus pounds were 250 So you can just about imagine what I had, right? And then after they took their fee out, I only had about 18 pounds. And I shared this morning, 
I went to a cafe to get some tea, and they, they had the nerve to charge me two and a half pounds. <laughs> I said, you know where you can put this tea? <laughs> I just left it in the form of a question, you know. <laughs> I wasn't making any assumptions, you know. <laughs> but not only were they exchanging money at exorbitant rates, but they were selling substandard animals at overinflated prices. You see, the only place you can get the animals was at the official temple shop. And the temple was receiving high rates, uh, high rents, uh, you know, and a cut of the profits from these unscrupulous merchants. And so because they had lost their focus, even for the Son of God himself to cleanse the temple was unthinkable. Such a lack of focus needed to be disrupted. Because that kind of a lack of focus can lead you to destruction, and God loves us too much for that. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. Now that Jesus was teaching in the temple, the officials were even more upset with him. To them, he had no right to be there because he was not a product of their religious system. Uh, He didn't have the good housekeeping seal of approval, according to them. And therefore, they challenged Jesus to produce proper papers. But Jesus, you know, he, just, he was cool. I love the way he does things. These officials thought that they could silence Jesus by their power, but Jesus silenced them by his wisdom. And by questioning Jesus' authority, their contempt for him was stripped bare for all to see. In essence, they were saying to him, aren't you getting too big for for your britches? Aren't your press clippings going to your head? Where do you come off doing all these things? Who gave you the right? Had they noticed the quality and power of Jesus' miracles, this issue never would have come up. Instead of questioning Christ's authority, they would have asked themselves, who gave us this authority to question his authority? But they didn't. Why? Because they had lost their focus on God's grace. Jesus had already settled the issue of his authority by what he said and did. Nicodemus, for example, a teacher of Israel, admitted that Jesus was a, ready for this, teacher sent from God. Nicodemus also admitted that all the other teachers knew this when he said, We know that you are a teacher sent from God. And yet here were some of these same teachers with this question about Jesus' authority. To them, Jesus had no authority whatsoever if he wasn't one of them. Those who assert power with the most conceit are those who will abuse power with the most contempt. No matter how Jesus answered the question, the outcome would have been the same. Thus, they thought they had Jesus where they wanted him. They thought they had Jesus where they wanted him. It's dangerous when you come to presuppositions too fast. First, if he refused to answer the questions, they would have condemned him as illegitimate as an illegitimate usurper. Now, they would have insisted 
or insinuated that his silence was an admission of his guilt. Second, if he said his authority was from God, they would have demanded that he prove it by a sign or a miracle. However, if he gave them a sign or a miracle, they would have rejected it and condemned him with, with blasphemy, which they did later on. If he refused to give them a sign or a miracle, then they would have tried to use it as proof to show that he had no authority. And so with that set up, let's go to verses 3 through 8. Jesus answered with a question. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? You see, the answer could have only been one way or the other. It either had to be from heaven or from man. No middle ground. And by this, Jesus put them into their own trap. It's what you call, in academic circles, we call it presuppositional apologetics. <laughs> oh, hallelujah. <laughs> you know, some academics get things right every now and then, don't they? First, had they said that John's ministry was of men, then they could have tried to explain it, explain their answer by saying that John performed no miracles. But this would have gone against what they already knew. You see, they themselves asked John the Baptist in chapter 1, verse 21, they asked him, Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And everybody understood who the prophet was. The prophet was the coming Messiah that God would send. And that question had a presupposition. If they are asking, are you Elijah? The presupposition is that since Elijah was sent by God and promised to come back, are you that one? The question proved that they believed that John's ministry was from God because they knew that Elijah and the prophet would be sent by God. Second, if they said that John's ministry was of God, their question to Jesus about his authority would have been answered. In fact, John bore witness to Jesus. And third, if they refused to answer Jesus' question, this would be proof that they had no right to question Jesus' authority in the first place. Because they knew the truth and refused to admit it, they became involved in a conspiracy against the truth and against God. In other words, they lost their focus on God's grace. How do they do this? Throughout the Old Testament, God kept telling them, you are my chosen people. You are my chosen people. And what they, they didn't hear what God was really saying. You see, God had repeatedly told them that they were to be Israelites because they were chosen. That being an Israelite was a response to God's saving grace. But they mistakenly assumed that they were chosen because they were Israelites. There's a whole big difference 
that being an Israelite somehow earned God's favor. And eventually, the Israelite religion replaced God as their object of faith and devotion. It goes all the way back to Genesis, doesn't it? Cain and Abel, both of those boys went to church every Sunday, participated in Sunday school and youth group. <laughs> they ushered on Youth Sunday wore white gloves. <laughs> Took up the collection and all that. They did all of that. But one was accepted and the other one was rejected. Why? Because when Abel did his thing, when Abel did his sacrifice, it was an expression of his faith in God's saving grace. It was an expression of gratitude to, God's, for, for, to God for his saving grace. But when Cain did his sacrifice, it was the object of his faith. It was an instrument that he tried to use to appease God. God had no use for that. And it happens to us today. We still have Cain's and Abel's today. If we're not careful, we too will lose our focus on God's grace. God says to us today that we are to be Christians because we're chosen. Being a Christian is a response to God's saving grace. But too often, we assume that we are chosen because we are Christian. That being Christian somehow earns God's favor. Eventually, our Christianity will replace God as the object of our faith and devotion. And such a lack of focus needs to be disrupted. You know why? Because when Christianity becomes the object of our faith, then we are nothing but idol worshipers. It's easy to slip off of that focus of, on God's grace. If we lose our focus on God's grace, then like the chief priests and elders then, we will find ourselves opposing what God is doing now. Perhaps this might be why the church often finds itself on the wrong side of many social issues today. And I'm not saying that we should go out and be social justice warriors. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we should go out and make disciples of all people by his word. For the chief priests and elders, the only issues they were concerned about were their institutional status and their institutional security. Again, where the institution takes over the movement. First, their institutional status would be endangered if they affirmed John's ministry. Why? Because Jesus would have asked them, then why didn't you believe him? To admit that something is true and not to act on it is serious sin. And it's bad enough to neglect or oppose something that you know to be true, but it's even worse to refuse to admit the truth of that we oppose and neglect. If they had admitted the truth of John's ministry, then they would have been admitting that they rejected God's word and that they 
as a result, were without excuse. Second, their institutional security would have been endangered if they did not affirm John's ministry because they would have been exposed to the resentment, the anger, and the wrath of the people. It would show that the people were more in touch with God than they were. That the very people they said were cursed without the law were really those who were blessed with the gospel. The people were aware that these chief priests and elders knew John's ministry was of God in spite of their denial. The people would see that these men feared them more than they feared God. And the people would also see the confusion, jealousy, infighting, and politics within the religious establishment. Thus, because they lost their focus on God's grace, their response to Jesus was, we don't know. (laughs) And by this, they put themselves to shame. They proved themselves to be fake priests and fake elders. As leaders, they were supposed to be aware of such things. But because they refused to confess their knowledge, they were forced to confess their ignorance. They exposed themselves as liars because they had already admitted that John's ministry was of God. But sadly... They were more afraid of the shame of lying than the sin of lying. Such a lack of focus needs to be disrupted. Because God has something better for us than that. If we lose our focus on God's grace, we too will fall into the same trap. We too will fail to confess our sins to each other and to God. We too will be more concerned about our status and security with people than with our, vo- uh, than with our devotion to God. And such a lack of focus needs to be disrupted. Well, Jesus responded then to the pr- chief priests and elders. And I like the way he said it. He said, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, they knew. It's one thing the Bible tells us that everybody knows who God is. They knew. But they wouldn't say. And Jesus said, okay, if you don't say, then I won't say. They said they couldn't tell. But Jesus knew that they wouldn't tell. If they were so stubborn about affirming John's ministry, then they were not fit to question Jesus' authority. And therefore, Jesus was right in not answering them. Well, if we lose our focus on God's grace, then we get to the place where we are not convinced of the truth. And we will end up at a place where we will be provoked by the truth. If you get to the place where you're not convinced of the truth, then you will be provoked by the truth. If we lose our focus on God's grace, then we will imprison the truth in unrighteousness. 
And once we imprison the truth in unrighteousness, then we will have locked ourselves out of access to more truth. There was a man a while back that lost his focus on God's grace. A rich man, remember him? He died. And he went to hell. And he begged Abraham to let Lazarus go back to his brothers and warn them that they better get their focus back on God's grace to avoid coming to this place. And Abraham said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, then they will not be convinced even if someone raises from the dead. The rich man, his lack of focus on God's grace had been disrupted, but unfortunately it was too late. Now we look at ourselves today and we think, well, we're not that bad, are we? Well, I think we are, because that's why God had to save us. <laughs> you got that? How many of y'all know this? Okay, okay, we know this. We all do this. I mean, it's a, it's a common thing. We, we think, we'll, oh, we won't reject God's truth like that. But let's not be too quick to think we're home free. See, most of us think that there's only one way to reject the truth. Right? One way to reject the truth. Well, there is one way, but there are several other ways, too. As a matter of fact, there are five other ways to reject the truth. And they are more subtle and dangerous. It's one thing to say, I just won't believe it. But there are five other ways to reject the truth when we lose our focus on God's grace. First, we can reject the truth by a simple refusal to acknowledge it. Just don't, just don't acknowledge it. Don't admit that it's been said. Second, we can, inject, we can reject the truth by ignoring it. Oh, we know it's there, but we're just not going to bother to respond to it. <laughs> Third, we can reject the truth by accepting it, but refusing to acknowledge the consequences. Oh, I know if I don't receive Christ, I'm, I'm going to be under God's judgment. So what? I'm doing all right so far. I'll take my chances. I'll wait till I'm on my deathbed to confess, to submit to Christ. Well, that's great. <laughs> but what's the presupposition? That you will have a deathbed. Many folks don't get a chance to get to their deathbed. Maybe walking down the street, that's it. Fourth, we can reject the truth by accepting it and explaining it away. I was talking to a Muslim one day and... Uh, I've done a lot of talking to Muslims over, over, over time. And it was early in my time of uh, dealing with Muslims, and I didn't understand all their doctrines. But I finally had convinced uh, this uh, Rashid 
about the truth of the New Testament and the Old Testament. And I said, you know, it says Jesus is the only way to salvation. I said, now, if you want to receive Christ and want to continue to abstain from pork, well, that's on you. I, I got no problem with that. But when we go to hobos or some restaurant like that, they serve us ribs, and you give me your ribs, okay? <laughs> Other than that. <laughs> and uh, so I had him convinced. I had him convinced. He says, okay, okay, the Bible is the word of God. It's inerrant. I thought I had him. I mean, I had him right there. I was doing good presuppositional apologetics. But he came to the point where he said, well, the Bible is true. But it doesn't matter because it's been abrogated. I said, what? I had never heard that before. And see, in Islamic doctrine, if there's, a, uh, there's an early, you know, like in the Quran, there are early verses that are kind of warm and fuzzy, you know. Christians and Jews, kumbaya, we all worship the same God, right? And those are the verses that were recited in Mecca. Then there are the later verses that were recited in Medina when Muhammad became a, a dictatorial ruler. And those are the verses that say, Christians and Jews, off with their heads, kill them, beat. Now, 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 now don't you understand where, where uh, ISIS is coming from? They go by the Medinan passages. <laughs> now, here's the problem. The, they, they contradict each other. But the Muslims have solved the problem. They say, okay. The Meccan passages, the warm, fuzzy ones, are canceled by the cold, prickly ones. In other words, the warm, fuzzy ones are abrogated. And so this Muslim came to me and says, the Bible, it came before the Quran, it's been abrogated. And so he explained it away. And he slipped through my fingers. I never let that happen again. He rejected the truth. The fifth way, we can accept it we, we can reject the truth by accepting it, but use it against God. And this morning, I, I referred to our first parents. Can you imagine the foolishness of Adam trying to hide now? <laughs> Adam, did you do what I told you not to do? Now, God, no, 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 just, 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 just hold tight, you know. <laughs> Look. <laughs> I did this because of that woman you made. <laughs> Accept it. Yeah, I, I hate it, but it's your fault, God. You made, all right, Eve, what's your problem? Well, not now, now. Uh, it's that serpent you made. See? So we can accept it and use it against God. So... You see, this thing comes at us all the time. We always lose our focus. And one of our prayers should be, God, keep us focused on your grace. You know, all religions of the world are the same in terms of their salvific value. And you know what that value is? Their, ab their ability to save. You know what that value is? Zero. That includes Christianity. You cannot be saved by Christianity. There's no salvation in Christianity. There's only salvation in Jesus Christ and by his grace. And we, be, and we, uh, we should then be Christians because we are saved. We should be like Abel. But if we think that, 
When Christianity becomes the object of our faith, we're in trouble. It's Jesus who is the object of our faith. A lack of focus on God's grace makes it easy to reject God's truth. And how easily we do this. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Because of his grace and because of his love, such a lack of faith and a lack of focus is disrupted. That should be our prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you will keep us focused on your saving grace and keep us from losing our focus on your saving grace by believing in things that seem right but are poison when they become idols. Save us from this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.